You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. For those of you who are new to the podcast or new to Kina and you don't know who Kina Reed is, I wanted Kina to introduce herself briefly to those of you who may be living under a rock and don't know who Kina Reed is. Oh, wow. That is so, so sad. Get you a friend, y'all, that will say things like that, <laughs> you know, out in the... <laughs> It's like you have to be under a rock to not know who I am. I think you could be on top of several rocks and still not know who I am. But uh, <laughs> I'm okay with that. Uh, so I am Joaquina Reed. I go by Kina and she's her pronoun. And I am formally by trade a uh, diversity, equity, inclusion consultant and facilitator. I am also the person who is the curator behind the Anti-Blackness Reader Project and the Divesting for Whiteness platform. I am the creator of the podcast Divesting for Whiteness. Woohoo! I don't know what that means yet, but <laughs> episodes coming soon. Yay! Um, I am someone who is a dedicated... I am in, a person who is in pursuit of justice all the time. Um, I am a, a dog owner... A nanny of eight kids. Nanny, I'm an aunt. That's my word for aunt. Um, and I'm a black woman who's, I'm out, I mean, I'm out here every day, every day trying to figure out how to be safe and black. So those are all the things I am. I am also a fan of your podcast. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I you appreciate that. Right. What, what? Right. <laughs> You were my first guest, and then you agreed to uh, co-host this episode with Propaganda, and I'm so, so grateful that you did, because I'm sure the interview would have been a bit boring and bland without your brilliance on it, so I appreciate that. I wouldn't say I agreed as much as I got wrangled, because you were like, it's going to be this early in the morning, and I was like, what? But but as you hear, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely yes. It was delightful. It was such a delightful <laughs> experience, and like, yeah, I wouldn't have traded for the world. I'm very very happy that you wrangled me in for that very early. When people listen to that the episode, they're people like, dang, I didn't know that Keena was tired. I'm like, I know, but right. I mean, come on, you came in. You were you. But then I felt bad because like we're we're whining about our time and prop mentioned that I think we were like his fourth or fifth I know, it was interview so at that point, And it was 5.30 in the morning, his time, which means was he going all night long? Like he just didn't know. sleep? The coffee helps probably. Oh my gosh. So we're here on the other end of the interview with Prop to just kind of talk about the experience, the interview, um, the ideas that we talked about in it with his book, Terraform. So, Kina, what did you, what, like, what stands out to you from that conversation that we had? I mean, the most shallow component is going to be that, like, Prop is really about that coffee life. Like, <laughs> it was so funny because, like, I've heard 
him talk about coffee and I've seen the amazing music video that I can't think about right now where Prop showed, I can't think of the title of the song in the video right now, but it shows footage of like Prop being in villages with people and talking coffee and having fireside chats and stuff. But all of that would did not prepare me for seeing Prop actually make a cup of coffee in front of my face. Mm-hmm. So I, the only thing I would do if I had to make a metaphor, it would be like seeing Thomas Edison like hugging <laughs> <laughs> the light. <laughs> and like, oh wow, you do the thing. That's awesome. So, yeah. It would have been like if Steve Jobs came back from the dead and then was like on the iPhone. You're like, huh. I love it. Yeah, when I was contacted by his assistant, I was like, um, yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm a huge fan. And not like a huge fan in that I'm aware of, you know, the breadth and depth of all of his work. But it's impacted me enough that I tattooed Nuances Sacred from a tweet of his, right? And so I was like, Kina, you got to come on. I just want everybody to know, I really cautioned Jen against that. I was like, don't lead with that, Jen. And Jen didn't listen. And Jen did lead with that. And it wasn't creepy as I thought it would be. Nope. You know, Prop really handled it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because he knew, you know, like he knew of my work from Andre. I but I was. I was like, I just have to be honest. I am that person who tattooed your tweet. <laughs> So let's just get the awkward shit out of the way now because otherwise at some point I would be like, check out my tattoo. (laughs) And then it's going to be weird. I mean, there was a lot of awesome parts of that conversation. But when Prop talks about folk music and there are all these different genres, you know, like I've, I've long since known that Black people created blues, rock and roll, country. Um, but when Prop uh, gave that narrative that detailed Black people creating folk music, I, at that point, you cannot convince me that <laughs> that we haven't created all the things. And right. it really created a new tension for me that didn't exist prior. And so what it made me want to do after that conversation is really complicate how we understand or how we name someone who's a creator or originator. Like, who do we give ownership credit to? So, like, to the point with Thomas Edison, who is often named as the person who created electricity. And then History Shows Us. Shout out to our friend Letty of the History Shows Us podcast. I've been telling Letty that every time I use that phrase, I'm going to credit her. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we find out later that there were uh, there was a black man and I don't oh gosh I can't remember his name right now but actually had done a substantial amount of work that precluded Thomas Edison's work and so that conversation with Pratt really made me start thinking about what are the things that black brown indigenous folks have really created to a certain extent but because they might not have had the means of production, we're credited for it, right? And I think it's important that we complicate our understanding of those things, that just because someone is named as the source of, or the creator of, or the inventor of, if we put that against a larger backdrop of history, I think there's 
a lot of possibilities, you know, that maybe who we think did the thing did it. Yeah. So here's my wild conspiracy thought here. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it on air. I've never said this publicly before. Oh. <laughs> um, but I'm gonna do it. Breaking news. Burr, 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 burr. Is that how the sound goes? Yeah. <laughs> like that's my attempt to be DJ Kali. <laughs> what a gem. That the person who really wrote the Declaration of Independence wasn't Thomas Jefferson. Mm. What if it was <gasps> Sally Hemings? Oh. I mean, just picture it. Mm-hmm. What did he know about all people being created equal? He was a slave owner. Mm-hmm. A lot of his founding work supported the eugenics movement that followed in the 18th, 19th century. And I'm not saying necessarily like she penned the whole thing, but what if there are a lot of premises that showed up in that text based off of things she said out loud? Yeah. He certainly would have had access to her thoughts. Uh huh. If he had, a, you know, I'm just saying, like, there's a lot there. And so I've told that to people in the past, and they think I'm being really silly or facetious, but I'm also being really serious mm-hmm. that there's this whole compartment of our knowing about who did things that needs to be complicated by the fact that who was allowed to even own things at the time. Right. Yep. So. Anyway, that's definitely one of the major takeaways I have from that conversation is like, huh, there's this huge possibility that there's a world of things that have been created by BIPOC folks across um, the global world, but haven't been named or given or haven't been credited to them because of the legacy of anti-blackness and racism and xenophobia that exists worldwide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting listening to that because I didn't know all of the history of music there. But as I was listening and learning as well, because Prop talked about that in his book a lot, I was just like, what haven't Black people created? That part, especially in the Americas, Mm -hmm. especially in the United States, because, like I said, of enslavement, particularly where Black people weren't even allowed to have, weren't even allowed to legally read and write. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of things that there are a lot of mechanisms that existed that would have made it that easier to rip off a black person's creation and to say it's mine and not theirs. One of the things that I wanted to kind of explore more and, you know, we had a half hour with prop, uh, which was lovely, but something that I really wanted to explore more was around essentially like the crux of his book and and this idea that we as people have the power to create culture however we want to create it and that culture isn't just this thing that exists in a vacuum and in in you know something that we stepped into but that it was very intentionally manufactured and created and one of the things that you did in the episode was ask Prop, like, who's this we we're talking about? Because surely I'm not involved in the creation of whiteness and this, you know, supremacist society that we live in. 
And yeah, so I really wanted to kind of talk about that more and just dig into uh, your thoughts on that, what he was talking about, what it looks like to imagine something different. Before I get into my thoughts on the we, what are your thoughts on the we? Who do you think the we is? Well, I mean, the we was was made clear, right? Like, and I knew in the music and in his writing, uh, the song "We Are the Culture." He was talking about black and brown folks, and there's this part of me, and you and I have kind of talked about this privately, where as I've been learning how to and what it looks like to divest from whiteness, you know, like I come into this space of like. What is my identity? Where do I belong? How, how am I a part of this greater community of movement toward liberation for all people? If we think about who's at the table when our current societal norms, structures, processes were kind of fleshed out, it was not a keen origin. And all this time, we are being asked to follow those recommendations given to us when people like us weren't at the table. And we have bent ourselves backwards to do the things that they recommended for us to do. You know, that is the reality of our now. And so my response to to Prop was very much like I wasn't there when you know, like when we think about something like enfranchisement um, in the United States Constitution and the document that governed who got to be human, I mean, some of us got enfranchisement because it had to be legally stated. And I don't think people realize just how gross and violent that is, right? That they had to be. <laughs> There had to be like, there had to be like constitutional, um, legislative action in the United States that named me to be a human. And yet, every day I'm expected to pledge allegiance to the flag. Every day I'm expected to pay taxes to the government. You know. I mean, to me, in some weird way, it just feels like living in a house where your partner was previously, like, you know, married or engaged and created it all for one person, and that person went away, and then they were like, okay, well, now this is your bathroom, Tina. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I mean, but can I add the things I need? You know, like you made the the shelf and the mirror for people who were like six foot one, and I'm five four. So like, uh, can there be things here that let me like you right? Think, right. We're constantly asking to get access to spaces that weren't designed for us, and I think everyone needs to complicate that we. And that doesn't just happen across racial lines. That call that. That needs to happen across gender and across class because that we in the United States Constitution was a very specific group of people. And it is time we tell the truth about mm. that. We tell the truth about what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. And I think um, 
for people like you and I who would name ourselves as as abolitionists, even though I would name myself as a reluctant abolitionist, if I had to give myself a pen. And the only reason why I have reluctance around it is because for so long I was told that these structures and that these norms were the only thing I can rely on to get any any sense of equality, you know? And so divorcing myself from that is challenging. And I know that the wave of the future is one in which we have a blank canvas and we all start to paint Mm -hmm. on it together. But the vastness of that can seem overwhelming at times, especially when our whole lives people have been like, hey, you're just painting the like." What are those things where they like give you the outline already? You just have to color. Mm -hmm. I gave you like two metaphors, (laughs) just like that. So yeah, I I, I want to be a part of the we, but before I can become a part of the we, people have to recognize who was never a part of it. And that also means that people need to stop acting like they were. Like white women in particular, who are some of the most violent actors on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. Like, y'all weren't in that shit. But the length to which, you know, people work to include themselves in that, it's not going to work for anybody. I'm going to make one third metaphor. When I used to be a university professor, that's what I was in my formal life for 16 years, I would... (laughs) When I thought I was being especially clever and brilliant, mm-hmm. okay? This is me, like, Robin Williams. What was that movie, Dead Poet Society? Yeah. This is my attempt to be Robin Williams from Dead Poet Society. I'd get a dollar bill. I'd bring it to class. <laughs> you got to have the, you gotta have the, uh, the, the, the learning mm-hmm. aid. And I was like, what is this? Why does this matter? And, of course, students would be like, it's a dollar. It's money. And I'm like, what can you buy with this? And they're like, I don't know, gum? (laughs) And then I would dramatically tear it apart. I'm like, it's actually nothing. And then I do this whole thing about like money only having value because we say it does. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I didn't tear it apart. It just depends on how dramatic I was being that day. But what the people have to recognize is that Money has power because we collectively have given it power. And we need to start like using that as a lens for other things. Government has power because we've given it power. Churches have power because we've given them power. And we have to recognize that as easily as we gain the power, we can take it back. Mm. And that's what's so frustrating for me sometimes because like I'm like can't you all see that you know what I'm saying like literally we could all pick a designated time and bring all of our cash and burn it right what would that do and what kind of freedom would that give us you know this is my socialist self coming out in this conversation let's look I'm gonna derail us but I'm just saying like when Prop says that we can create, the, we create the culture and we create, we have this opportunity to create a new world, what that really points to is we get to say what we're going to buy into 
but we also get to name what we're no longer going to buy into. Yeah. And we keep letting people who are higher in hierarchies tell us and name our experiences. That's got to stop. It just has to. Like, sometimes we look at the people at the top of the hierarchy and feel like what they say goes, but really what they say matters because we've given it credibility. Yeah. I know that it's very easy to feel powerless, especially where you fall, depending on where you fall on that hierarchy of power. But I think the only way we get to take our power back, so to speak, is when we realize that part of the reason why the people at top of the the ladder are there is because they're standing on our heads. Maybe not literally. Sure. And so what happens when we recognize that the power we have is to no longer uplift and support what they've created? And that's a power of it into unto itself. I can say I'm no longer going to prop up this system. I'm no longer going to prop up those norms. I'm no longer going to prop up these people. And that liberates me, but I also think it gives license to, for people to liberate themselves as well. Yeah. Do you think there is a clear way forward in this? No, there's no, there's no way that it can be clear. There's no way this can be linear either because lineality, I don't know if that's a Sounds word. like a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is not the way. <laughs> that is uh, linear thinking linear processing we've had our brain has had to adapt to those things oh yeah sure. but that is not that is not a global experience mm-hmm. and so i don't think it will be clear what i do wish for is figuring out and this is going to make me sound like a hypocrite because i'm always saying that we need to divorce ourselves from like this need of outcomes you know, and like we need to become less and less married to outcomes. But I do think in this regard, we need to figure out where we want to land. And yes, rather we're saying okay. like shared humanity, yeah, yeah. whatever, then we once we figure out where we want to land, then we can start thinking about all the different routes that we take to that. But I don't think we've agreed on where the landing is you know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. for me if you were to ask me Kina what's the landing strip here it is shared Mm -hmm. and that means that I want to live in a world where no particular voice or experience is centered Mm -hmm. over anybody else's Mm. and so that means that whether I'm having conversations about compulsive heterosexuality um, the patriarchy whatever it is that's the route I'm going to use to get to the thing that I'm saying should be our common goal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was, it, it's so, it's so challenging because it's like, as I want to have a conversation about, you know, like what could this terraforming look like? Like what could that actually look like in reality? I have a hard time even coming up with a question 
that doesn't have some sort of linear thought process or quantitative, you know, Mm -hmm. like data point or something. And it's not about that. You know, it's like I remember a long time ago talking to Gabe's Torres and she was talking about decolonial work. And I I think, you know, I was still at this point in my journey where I was like, okay, give me the ABCs and one, two, threes. What books should I read? Mm -hmm. What are my ABCs and one, two, threes of becoming better at this stuff? And, um, and it was so funny because even as I was asking, it's like, I realized like, this isn't, ah, this isn't even the, uh, the question. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think I get like people, we are, we, we want process. Yeah. I do think we want process. I don't know if that's divine or not, but I definitely think it's something we've got grown accustomed to. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think it's okay for people to say, like, where do I start? Yeah. Not necessarily what do I do, but where do I start? That's a good question. Right. And I have an easy response to the where do we start? Mm-hmm. But I realize how heavy that is. Because I would say where do you start is knowing that almost 90% of the things that you believe in is a lie. And for some people, that is completely discombobulating. Yeah. I've grown a little bit more comfortable with reckoning with lies Mm. to the point where, like, I'll just be minding my own black business and I'll realize something else is a lie. I'm like, oh, okay. Most recently, I realized the current conceptualization of work is a lie, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, wow. More pyramid schemes, okay. But for some people who have staked their whole kind of sense of self on being a brilliant executive, on a hard worker, you know, they 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 work from the bottom, you know, at their company and they work their way up to the top. You tell them work is a lie, and they're like, no. Not this thing I'm great at. Not this thing that makes me who I am. Right. Uh-uh. Right. Gives them their identity. Yeah. yeah. But it's just a scheme. Yeah. So I think people need to lean into... And also, let me give this a context. It is easier for me to see the lie of work when I'm not really profiting as much from mm, the lie. Yeah. So with all of these pyramid schemes that we're all like prompting up, it's easier to recognize the lie when you're like not the person who's on the the receiving end of the benefits Mm -hmm. of it. So the same thing with whiteness, it's easier for me as a black woman to see the pyramid scheme because I don't really benefit as much as a white person from Mm -hmm. whiteness. You know what I'm saying? Um, But... And, you know, I'm a deeply spiritual person, Jen. And so I think that value comes to humans just because we've been divinely made. Not because of the stuff we earn or own, you know. But if you do believe your value is attached to these things, these external things, like how much money you earn or what kind of car you drive or how big is your house in comparison to your neighbors like 
it's that much harder to come become unplugged from mm. that. Yeah. But if people were willing to sit with what makes them truly unsafe versus what makes them uncomfortable, I think they would start to realize that the lie doesn't feel good to them either. So, wow. like, to turn this back to COVID for a yeah. second, um, like, for white people in the South, and I'm being really specific, to say, I'm not going to get that vaccine, I don't trust the government. I'm always, like, both amused, but also horrified by that response. Because the things that they're naming that they don't trust make no sense to me. And I'm like, here are the things you really shouldn't be trusting that you're completely not paying attention to. So you have a right to actually question the feds, but you're not asking the right questions. You know? So, um, yeah, I just think people should start with what are the things that I really think it's true that there might not, there may be some holes mm-hmm. there. That's a good starting point. What are the things that don't feel, uh, and it's just hard because I'm limited by the language that I, was, that I was supposed to speak in the first place. What are the things that deep in your knowing don't always feel mm. good? And investigate that. Like, if you're sitting at a tea party or whatever, and you're gossiping about, like, the fact that the family down the street just lost their house, or their car got repossessed or some shit, and you're doing it because it's the norms of, like, social gossip or whatever, but deep in your knowing, you probably feel, like, crappy about it, you know, it's like, what are those things that you're conscious of constantly like saying, this is unsteady. And I just feel like in this COVID-19 world, like even though there are people who are like, I'm not taking the vaccine and I'm not wearing a mask, if they would quiet themselves enough, they would be able to connect to what does it feel right about this situation? That's another layer that really helps me in my journey toward like seeing these people who fit in that um, group that you named, like with more, like seeing their humanity more. Cause I, I have struggled with that for quite some time. Um, I'm finding that again, but uh, that that's just another layer for me. That's really helpful. Um, so one question I would ask you, and you, you sort of started to name this, but like, do you have a vision for what this shared humanity looks like? Yeah, I think I hinted to it earlier, but it's one where everyone takes baths. <laughs> I'm totally going to put the boom boom in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kina. I mean... So here's here's the path forward. What is the path forward? It's not going to feel good to a lot of people, right? Because you're going to feel like you're losing until you feel like you're winning. Right. That's a good way to put it. It's just mm-hmm. not. Like the path forward is one. Again, ideally for Akina, the landing strip is living in a world where power is um, 
like the things that have divinely been created get restored. So for example, I say, let's go back to that work and make like the work um, concept I was talking about. Like work is a violent enterprise in its current into um in its current manifestation. People are paying for things that are free. So like water is free, uh, air is free, metal is free, wood is free. If it grows from the woods, like all those things that people own now. I mean, could you imagine the caucasity? And I'm being specific about that because that was a white person who was like, here, all these wells that are naturally in the ground, like, you know, in some communities globally, but even here in the United States, that have just always belonged to the community. But now, like, you know, which white men with lots of money can get to say, well, I'm going to own this well, you know, I'm going to own this water source, you know what I'm saying? Like, the violence of that is like so stifling. But in my manifestation, in the world that I'm creating, the terraform that I'm imagining is one where, like, as hippie as it sounds, like we labor instead of work. And so labor in the most like rural sense looks like how do we have community gardens that ensure everyone eats in the community? How do we create community housing projects where we ensure that no one is um, housing insecure? And so these are things that are accessible and ought to be freely accessible to all. That looks like no one is centered, no one's story is centered, no one... Um, no one's narrative is centered. We all exist with multiple truths every day of our lives. But in order to get there, there has to be a very intentional flip-flop. And that's the part where people have to make some sacrifices. Especially when we've been taught that I'm the center when it comes to this thing. My, my, my religious practice is the center. My sexuality is the center. My gender is the center. And so for me to say, I will willingly step off stage to make space for other people, that's not organic to me. And I have to develop muscle around that. Yeah. And do you have hope for that? Yeah, I do. I have to. I have to. I, I mean, like, <laughs> people, I think people think I'm being very naive when I say that in my lifetime, the descendants of enslaved African people will get reparations. I have to believe that. To me, I have no other option, you know? Now, does that mean I have to do all the things to make that occur? No, because that's like hustle and grind culture, and I'm tapping out of that. I just need to play my position to make, like I have to do my part to make that manifest. So yes, I have hope in that. I have hope that the fact that you and I are having this conversation, that you and I had that conversation with Pat, like all of those pos those things are seeds and then people will listen to this and like continue to water those seeds and then a tree will grow. I think a lot of people realize the world is wrong. Are they willing to admit it? Maybe not. <laughs> but I think 
that a lot of people are starting to see that we build a lot of like houses of speaking sand to really borrow that like that kind of like liturgical language there but um I think lots of people realizing things are broken they just don't know where the bricks are and they don't know what role they play in repair and that's why you and I exist do you have any other thoughts or things that you want to share before we close out I think that everyone should get the book and I think that the book can be another way to kind of start those conversations at a like a intrapersonal level um because too many people are trying to have conversations with other people about shit they don't understand so you kind of need to start understanding something for yourself before you can transmit it to others and so I do think that Pop's book provides a really good place to like have solo time with these larger things before we close out, I just want to ask, like, what are you up to on the anti-blackness reader, on divesting from whiteness? I would love to hear <laughs> about just what you're planning and preparing with your podcast, because I know that's coming soon. Tell the people. We want to know. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. Okay, so I know I said that people need to start a good starting place to reimagine, to create this new earth, this new culture, this new society, um, a new way to live. Because that's what Pop is really holding up, right? This book is a mirror to the possibility that there, there's a new way to live. And so, you know, earlier I said that I think people have to first understand that there's some lies that they're uplifting, right? Um, and so I do think that people should become more nuanced in this conversation. We're going to go back full circle. You know, Jen, you and I have had this conversation several times. I know that I often get named as an anti-racist educator, and that's because the language we have access to is probably the thing that makes what I do make right. the most sense. But whenever I have an opportunity, like right now, I tell people I'm actually not an anti-racist yep. educator. Should we end racism? Sure. <laughs> Do right. that. Uh, make it, you know, make it happen. <laughs> um, but the violence that we're up against is so contextual and so nuanced. And if you, like, if we woke up tomorrow and racism was still, like, racism was gone, uh, I still have problems because I'm still living in an anti-Black world. So, uh, I feel like people, so anyway, to answer your question, I do think people have to build a little more girth and muscle around very specific conversations. Yes. And what I don't like that is happening in the anti-racism space and the anti-racism industry is one, I don't like how white women in particular are censoring themselves. So let me say that off top. Rachel, Karen, y'all need to sit sit down that's the shit I don't like but also in the the breadth of that conversation a lot of things get lumped together and that's because people can only like it's like they can only eat one sandwich and so people are gonna have to grow their palate up <laughs> don't stay in that 
Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you needed to read white fragility, well, first of all, don't read white fragility. Robin D'Angelo is a racist, white supremacist actor is what I call her. I don't care. I hope somebody tells her that I'm calling her white supremacist. Um, my list of white supremacists actually grows every day. And a lot of these new people on the white yeah. supremacist actor list are actually people who do anti-racism work. The irony is not... <laughs> I have been on a kick for the last week and a half over some of these white men who are like they have hundreds of thousands of followers and they say they're anti-racist and they start patreon communities and i'm like i want to take these guys out we're gonna do it we're gonna create it let's do it okay stay tuned y'all stay tuned but with that being said grow up your palate i understand initially people can only digest chunks of things but you're going to have to get more and more nuanced here in this conversation. And so to answer your question, um, I have a Patreon community. Um, I am trying really hard to help people get more comfortable having more specific conversations about their behaviors, their norms, their processes. Um, with the, anti-reader, the anti-Blackness leader, I center Black truth, Black storytelling. So that that creates the pathway for eliminating anti-blackness, which is not racism. They are not the same thing. Um, in the Divesting from Whiteness podcast and platform, I talk about my own journey of divesting from whiteness and the things that I've done, but also the things that I've observed. And I'm utilizing the 16 years that I've spent across universities and colleges teaching adults about these processes. I can't tell you, Jen, how many times I'm the first person to tell a white student they have a racialized experience. And they're always like, what? Huh? I thought race was just for the other folks. And I'm like, oh no, oh no. And so people, I think I'm a really good asset for people who are ready to like start doing reps in the gym. You know, you're like, oh, I'm serious about pushing the weight. I got a bot bitch press 300 pounds. I know that I use yeah. the like a very masculine metaphor to make my point, but I'm <laughs> you know, people have to there's not a one stop fits all place in this conversation. It's just not. This is ongoing mm-hmm. work. It's ongoing. hmm Yeah, I really appreciate the way that you framed all of that. So where do we find and follow you, Kina? So you can go to my website, JoaquinaReed.com. Can you spell that for us? Yes. J-O-Q-U-I-N-A-R-E-E-D.com. Awesome. You can go there. Um, you can go to Divesting from Whiteness on Instagram. You can go to the Anti-Blackness Reader. It's on Instagram. Thank you for just, you know, co-hosting that wild interview with me and uh talking about it some more here 